as we've been going through the book of Acts on Wednesday nights, um, there's been some great things that have come out. If you were with us last week, we, we talked about how uh, the Apostle Paul had been told by the Holy Spirit that there was going to be bonds and afflictions awaiting him when he went to Jerusalem, that, that somehow by going to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested. And his friends, when they heard this, they tried to convince him not to go, but he knew that God was telling him to go. And when you know God's telling you to go, when you know God's telling you to do, it doesn't matter what you're facing when you get there, you'll go. Because we'd much rather be in his will than have a comfy life outside of his will. Amen? His will is far better. Amen. And so he's, he's going to Jerusalem knowing that there's going to be some opposition, knowing that there's going to be some trouble. And uh, he goes anyways. And, and, and so we find ourselves in Acts chapter 21 still. And I want you to turn to Acts 21 and verse 15. The last thing we saw was uh, the disciples saying, well, if we can't stop you, may the will of the Lord be done. And sometimes that's the best thing you can say. Sometimes the best thing you can say is, I don't know the right answer, but let's pray that God's will is done here. Now, there are some areas where his will is very clear in his word, right? Sometimes we pass that off. We, we kind of pass the buck and say, well, let, whatever God's will is, let it be done. And in areas where he's made his, his word clear and his will clear in the matter, in his word, then those are times where you say, he's already showed us his will. Let's pray the will of God. But there are times where you don't know and you, it's, it's okay and it's good to say, well, God's will be done. Let's pray that through. And in fact, Romans 8 says, when you don't know how to pray which I can freely admit, and I hope you can too, that there's plenty of times that we know something needs to be fixed, we just don't know how to do it. He says in Romans 8, when we don't know how to pray, we pray through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us, and he intercedes through us in groanings too deep for words, and he prays out the perfect will of God. And so we believe that God wants to use his people to pray out his will. But there are times where if we have a disagreement with one another over what that is, sometimes the best thing to say is, well, the will of the Lord be done. We're still friends, all right? We're going to walk away still, still brothers and sisters in the Lord. May the will of the Lord be done. And that's what happened. Paul left for Jerusalem having been begged not to go. Having heard the Holy Spirit saying, when you go, this is what's going to happen. And in verse 15, it says, after these days, we got ready and we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. That's, that's good. It's good that they were gladly and warmly received. You see, the last time he was in Jerusalem, there was a bit of an argument. I don't know if you remember what the argument was about, but the, but the argument back in Acts chapter 15 was about whether or not the Gentiles who were getting born again. Gentiles means non-Jews, all right? So the, the gospel started out as Jews. Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were, were Jews. It was, it was the Jews receiving their Messiah and some rejecting the Messiah. But as it spread, it spread to 
other people who had no concept of one God, who had no concept of a Messiah, who had no concept of Moses or the law. And so as the gospel was preached to them, uh, the Apostle Paul and, 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 and people like Philip and, 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 and all of these other ministers of the gospel that were sent to the Gentiles were preaching that the gospel was for them too and they didn't have to become Jews in order to receive it, which was quite revolutionary. And so the Jews in Acts 15 were upset because these Gentiles were getting saved and they were not eating kosher. Or the Gentiles were getting saved and they weren't celebrating all the feast days. Or the Gentiles were getting saved and their kids are like 18 years old, weren't circumcised. And they say, you better get that done. And they were like, we don't really want to do that. And the Apostle Paul said, you don't have to do that because it's circumcision of the heart that matters. So... In Acts 15, they kind of came to a resolution when they saw that God was doing something. They recognized it. Peter got up and told his story. Uh, Paul and Barnabas got up and told their stories. And they went back to the word and they showed them how God had had said he was going to do this work amongst the Gentiles. And in the end, they wrote a letter to the Gentiles saying, we accept you. You're part of our group. You're part of our family. But in order for us to fellowship together, we'd ask that you not eat this certain stuff and you don't do this and you stay away from fornication. All of those things, if you do that, we'll be fine. So that's what happened. Now we've come back. Paul has come back to Jerusalem and it's years later and they receive him warmly. So that seems like a good thing. But not all is as it seems because even though they receive him warmly and gladly, they've got some things to say. In verse 18, it says, The following day Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. James had a a position of leadership in the Jerusalem church. He was not the leader of, of the whole church, but he had a real strong place of leadership in the Jerusalem church. And it says here that after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one this is Paul, the things which God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Isn't that great? They weren't opposed to it. They weren't mad. They were happy about it. They glorified God. And it says, they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are amongst the Jews who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So something's starting here. They're they're excited. Look how many Jews have believed, but they're all zealous for the law. And he says, and they've been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or not to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hurt here that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take take them and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which you've been been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. So what's happening here is that there's a a disagreement. Um, There's obviously some, some rumors going around about Paul. And the rumors are... See, because he's been preaching to the Gentiles that, that the Lord is grafting you in, he's been preaching to the Gentiles that you don't, have to be, you don't have to go back to the old covenant. You're part of the new covenant. Well, now, here's the thought. They're saying, well, you're telling good Jews to stop being good Jews. And so there's, in Jerusalem, there is, there's tension about this. And let me give you some background for that. About when Paul came, most scholars believe it was like AD 56 or AD 57. All right, And so historians like Josephus tell us that in the mid-50s, 
It's weird to say that and be talking about like the original mid-50s, right? <laughs> I'm not talking about Buddy Holly, and I'm talking about the 50s. Like nothing came before 50s, no, no 19 before the 50s, just 50s. In the mid-50s, uh, there was a great surge of Jewish nationalism. If you uh, study a little bit of the history, you'll know that right at this point in history, the Romans were in charge. The Romans had their empire, and this, this area of the empire was called Judea. And even though they were allowed to have some of their own customs and their own rules, they still were under the thumb of the Romans. They still had a Roman governor. They still had Roman laws. And so what happened was many, they had insurrection after insurrection. These, there were different groups that kept trying to rise up and overthrow the Romans, and they kept getting crushed and put down. In some cases, thousands of Jews were killed in, in these little mini rebellions. And so it's in this atmosphere that Paul's coming back. So amongst the Jews, there's a real anti-Gentile sentiment going on because they've been oppressed because they're, you know, the Gentiles are doing these things to us. All of a sudden, they're becoming very proud of who they are and very resistant of any outsiders. So you got to understand that right now, it's not very cool. It's not very popular to be the guy that's preaching to Gentiles. It's especially not very popular when people tell other people that you're telling good Jews to become like Gentiles. So Paul's coming back, and he's not the most popular guy in the room. It's not a good time to be on the side of the Gentiles. This is politics. How many of you know that politics, unfortunately, works its way into the church? Wish it didn't, shouldn't, but it does. And often, it's not based on fact. It's based on a little bit of truth mixed with a whole lot of other stuff. This is why it's a bad idea for you to just you know, get into the gossip circles. It's a bad idea for you to start yapping about things that don't concern you. And it's a bad idea for, you know what I'm talking about? Like there are, there are churches that are doing great works for Jesus in this city and you might hear something about them. You might hear something about this going weird. You might hear something about this pastor, that pastor, this group or that group. And I'll tell you, if, if it doesn't concern you, don't make it your concern and don't talk about it. Because half the time, you got a little bit of truth and a whole lot of other stuff. See, we're called to be people of God. And, you know, as good as it feels to dish on stuff, as good as it feels to know the inside scoop, that's not the way of the gospel. It's not the way of the kingdom. And I think it'd be good for us. And, you know, sometimes we use these things. We say, well, I just want you to know all the facts so you can pray. And I thank God for prayer. But I also thank God that God knows the facts, right? You see, I believe in prayer chains. I believe in, you know, my grandma was part of this prayer chain back in, in Texarkana, Texas. And a um, powerful woman of prayer, and, and she had a lot of friends who were too. And so this prayer chain, if they need, somebody needed prayer, she'd, she'd answer the phone. They'd pass it on. They, they had the next person that they'd always call. Well, unfortunately, while that is a great thing, sometimes these prayer chains get taken over and end up being gossip chains, but you make it holy by calling it a prayer thing, right? I, uh, you need to know how to pray because, uh, you know, there's some weird stuff going on with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Simpson's husband, you know, uh, he's been into some strange things. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't tell you this, but I want you to be able to pray. As if God somehow can't act unless you know all the facts. 
In most cases, not even the facts. It's just the latest gossip. Dressed up in a nice Christian suit. Well, this has happened to Paul. There's rumors going around about him. There's tension. And right now, it's not a good thing to be on the Gentiles' side. So he comes and he's received warmly. But they're warning him that a lot of these, not, he's got some people that aren't his biggest fan. So here's what we're going to tell you to do. There's four guys that have taken a vow. Now, most likely, this is a Nazarite vow. That's why they had to shave their heads. That's what Josh did tonight. He's taken a Nazarite vow. <laughs> no, it was, it was a cleansing and purification ritual. Now, I don't know what kind of ritual Paul went through. I know those four were, were Nazarites and they take the Nazarite vow, but Paul himself only did this for seven days, whereas the full Nazarite vow was a 30-day thing. So whether he did just a mini version of it or he did something that's described in Numbers where if you had been amongst the Gentiles, you came back to the holy city, you purified yourself for seven days. That's likely what he went through. Either way, they say if you do this, you'll prove you're a good Jew. It'll all smooth over. Now, they were wrong. It didn't work. But the Apostle Paul had, you know, he said in his letters, I, I want to become all things to all men. If I'm amongst the Greeks, I'll become like a Greek. If I'm amongst the Jews, I'll become like a Jew, so that by any means I may save some. It's worth it for me. You know, how many times do you feel like, this is stupid, I don't know why I'm doing this, but you know what, if it makes that person feel better, I'll do it, I'll do it with a smile on my face, and I won't grumble when they're gone, I'll just do it as under the Lord. Nobody's admitting to it now, but you know, maybe it's just me that's done this. But there are times where you do something, not because you think you have to do it, but because for the sake of someone else, I'm going to do it for Jesus, all right? And that's what Paul did. And as he goes through this ritual, when the seven days is up, well, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I won't skip ahead. He says, uh, the, these folks say to him in verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who've believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd, and they laid hands on him. Not the good kind of laying hands either. They grabbed him, and they cried out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. Does that sound like what you've been reading as we've been going through the book of Acts? He's been preaching against them. But that's what they've heard. And they say he's preached against our people and the law and this place. In other words, the temple. And besides, he even brought, a, brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So that was all based on hearsay, based on little bits of truth, but not on a lot of fact. They saw Paul with a Gentile in the city of Jerusalem. They went from there and took the great leap of assumption to assuming he brought him into the temple with him, which was against the, the Mosaic law, which is against their Jewish custom. So they're accusing him of all sorts of things he didn't do. Has anyone been in this position in your life? What do you want to do when you're in that position? What do you want to do? 
you want to you want to to pull your pants up and and make it right and you want to yell and you want to scream and you want to maybe want to hit somebody I don't know what you want to do but you want to stand up for yourself but you notice the apostle Paul at this point is not saying a word very similar to what Jesus did Jesus was not legally executed We're coming upon Good Friday here. We're coming upon the season where we remember what Jesus had to go through and and, and Passover season. And you understand there was nothing legal about his trial. There was nothing legal about his execution by Roman law or Jewish law. And the things that were brought against him were mostly slander and not true in the least. But the Bible says he kept his mouth shut. And we'll read a little bit about that in a minute. So Paul is not trying to fight for himself here. They're saying what they're saying. It's wrong. And I'm sure you can all identify with it. When I was a kid, I didn't mind paying for crimes I committed. But my worst fear was that I would somehow be falsely accused of something. Uh, any, and any show, any movie that had a falsely accused main character... I hated it. I couldn't stand it. My greatest fear was that someday somebody would say something about me that wasn't true. And that God has such a sense of humor, he makes you a pastor. (laughs) I'll tell you something. When you stand on a stage, not everybody's going to say the right thing. Uh, You know, uh, I'm not a perfect human being. There are times where people have good reason. But there are other times you go, where did you hear that? I'm sure you've heard that as well. So here's what happens. He gets all this said about him. They brought him into the temple. And, and, and they're, they're, ta- they're talking about him in, in, in hugely slanderous terms. It says, then all the city was provoked. And the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Remember, this was in a time of great upheaval. So they were on guard here. In the mid-50s in in Jerusalem, they were ready for uprisings. They were ready for revolution. And uh, they weren't going to let something like this go on for too long. Because the longer you let it go on, the closer it becomes to actually something you can't handle. So they clamp right down on it. He hears about it. And at once he took along some soldiers and the centurions, and he ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, how nice. Then the commander came up, and he took hold of them, and he ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he'd done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. We, we could not find out the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Can you imagine? This is how vicious the mob has become against Paul that the soldiers have to just forget this. They pick him up and they carry him in. He's a grown man. Granted, his nickname is like Pee Wee, but he's still a grown man. They carry him into the barracks because his life is in imminent danger. Verse 36 For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, so this is is the the soldier that replied, Do you know Greek? So I'm, I'm assuming Paul said this in Greek. Can I say something to you? He said, You know Greek? He says, Then you're not the Egyptian 
who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. So, (laughs) I don't know if he looked Egyptian, but maybe the Romans are like, y'all look alike to me. Anyways, he's assuming that Paul is one of these leaders of these rebels, and, and so there's a group that he calls the assassins, which, you know, sounds cool, but it's not. These were a group of people who got their nickname uh, they, they're called the Sicarii. They got their nickname uh, because of the, the Latin word for a short dagger. So these guys got their nicknames because they would go with these short daggers and they'd go into a crowd of Roman supporters and they would slip in and they'd stab some important Ro- Roman officials or Roman supporters and then they'd slip out and no one would know they were there. They would know they were there, but they didn't know who did it. About 4,000 of them go up with this Egyptian. They get duped into his cause. And this Roman soldier assumes, uh, obviously this leader got away, and this Roman soldier assumes that these are, that, that Paul is the leader of these guys, that their, their uprising was crushed. Felix the governor had ordered it crushed and crushed severely. 4,000 people died, which is what this soldier says. According to Josephus, 30,000 died. So it might be somewhere in the middle. Josephus was a Jew. This soldier is a Roman. So the numbers are suspect on both sides. But there have been a lot of people lost their life. And apparently this leader got away. And they, the, the soldier thinks, well, they finally caught up with you. You were, the, you were the leader that led them to destruction. You got away. They caught you. They brought you back. So he says, you're not the Egyptian who led that uprising a little bit ago. Paul goes, here's his response. He says, I'm a Jew. Of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he'd given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and there was a great hush, and he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. And we'll go on to what he says next week. I don't want to just stop here for a minute. I want you to think about this. Because I know that if you are a believer in the room tonight... You've discovered a basic truth. Life is not fair. People are not fair. And I know that you just wish, and and, and I know many of us thought, you know, as long as I keep my nose clean, I follow Jesus, people will love me because isn't, isn't the gospel so full of love and so full of truth and it's so full of goodness? Won't people see that I've changed and everybody will like me? Well, I'm sure there's some people that saw the change in you and embraced it, but you also have found out that not everything's fair and not everybody liked you. Jesus straight up said this, if they hated me, they'll hate you. You know, Jesus, one of the things they called him was a drunkard and a glutton. Does anybody here believe that your Lord and Savior was a common drunk? No. Roy said it right away. No. We don't believe that. Don't believe he was a drunk. Don't believe he was just a glutton that just couldn't stop eating. Does anybody believe that about Jesus? No, we don't. And yet that's what he was accused of. Jesus said that John the Baptist, just because he didn't party very, you know, he was a serious guy, they said he had a demon. Maybe if you've realized by this point, not everybody's going to tell the truth about you. Not everybody is going to be straightforward about you. Not everybody is going to talk about you nicely behind your back. And I want to read something to you from the scripture that's going to give us hope because while people aren't fair, while life isn't fair, 
There is a judge. There is a heavenly father. And he is fair and he is just. And he is righteous. And if you stop worrying about what people say and you, make your, you, make, you set your hope on what God says, you're not going to be put down. You're not going to be depressed every time somebody says something about you that you don't like. Because you, as if you've been following Jesus for a while and if you're going to be planning on doing it for the rest of your life, there are going to be people that say things that aren't true. And we need to know how do I stand? Because Paul apparently here didn't, it, he, you don't see him crying in the barracks. Nobody likes me. None of it's true, man. And I just try and I just give my life for these people. And this is what they do. Do you see him doing that? No. You know, if he had had that temperament, he wouldn't have lasted two weeks. In fact, in his testimony, he's about to tell before the Jews, he says, as soon as I got saved, people were saying things about me that weren't true, and God said, you need to get out of the city. That's how badly they wanted him dead. But turn to 1 Peter 2, and, and I want you to see what, what God says to us as believers. Thank God that there is a judge in heaven. <laughs> you know, I've preached to people that were just freshly born again. And they came out of rough lives. And I remember preaching to a few groups of them where I said, you know, God is your judge. And, and you just saw everybody clench up right away. I was like, no, 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 that's a good thing now. The judge is on your side. <laughs> you know, because the minute somebody heard judge, they wanted to get out of the building. They're looking at the exits. They're, they're sizing up the usher like I, can, I could probably get by him. But in truth, you went from a position where the judge... The heavenly father, you went from a position where you said, I'm not on the right side here. I know I'm guilty. I know I've sinned. I know I've got a, 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 a not a very clean slate at all. You went from that to a place where Jesus took your punishment. He took your penalty. God didn't suddenly say, ah, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. I guess sin doesn't matter. No, it still matters. But he punished it in Jesus Christ. He punished your sin in Christ Jesus so that when you looked at God and God looked at you, he saw somebody who was righteous. So now, when we say the Lord is my judge, you don't have to be afraid about that. That's a good thing. That means, think about it, guys. If you stole a car and you stand before the judge... That's not a pleasant situation. But if somebody robbed you of your car and the police found him and the judge was going to take care of the issue, all of a sudden the judge is a good guy, isn't he? Because you're going to get what's yours back. And I want you to know that there are men in the Bible like Daniel. Do you know Daniel's name means the Lord is my judge? God is my judge. He was... So righteous, and yet he had people that hated him because God was elevating him. And so what they did was they, they conducted an investigation into Daniel's life. Daniel had risen to the top of the Babylonian government. He was an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar himself. He was an advisor and, and was someone who was uh, very well looked upon. I say Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> It was in Babylon, but the, by this point, the Babylonians weren't in charge anymore. And so he was advisor to the Persian uh, government. And 
as he is an advisor and as he is elevated, there are people that just don't like him. They conduct an investigation into his life and they find out that there is nothing bad that they can say about him. Can you imagine if your life was that squeaky clean? When investigated, they couldn't find a thing about you. But they didn't give up, did they? They made up a law. Can you imagine if people hated you so much that they couldn't find a thing against you so they have to make up a law against you? Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? But they did. They made up a law. They found out that Daniel prayed every day, and so they made it against the law to pray. Can you imagine how wrong you'd feel when you have a custom law made just for you? We feel so wrong done by so many times. We just think, oh, it's just not fair. It's just not, you know, people are out to get me. Have you ever had a law created just to, just to trip you up, just to jam you up? There was a whole law made just for you, and it's a silly law, like your favorite ice cream is pistachio, so they make it against the law to eat pistachio ice cream right as you got a spoon to your mouth. This is what it looked like, except it wasn't something silly like that. It was something he couldn't give up, which is pray to God. So in this time, you saw what God did. Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, trusted himself to God. And even though he was unjustly thrown into a pit with lions, God kept the lions from devouring him. You got to know that the sentence people put on your life, the accusations, and even the punishment, that's not the final answer in the situation. That's not the end of the story. That's not what's, that's not, you know, the, the final word. That's not the, the period at the end of the sentence. That ultimately you trust your life, you trust your soul, you trust yourself to a God who judges righteously. I want you to see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. That just as Daniel did with King Darius, even though he was falsely accused, he didn't start cursing the guy out. He didn't start throwing around things in the palace. He trusted God, just as Jesus did. And Jesus is our ultimate example. First Peter 2 says this, verse 11, Behold, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know what slander is, right? Slander is when someone's speaking things about you that aren't true. They're wrong. They're not based in fact. They're not based in reality. They're based in an attempt to pull you down. He says, he doesn't say some of you are going to be slandered. There's a possibility you might get slandered. He straight up says, you will be slandered. But this is why you keep your behavior excellent. This is why you live your life to Jesus. This is why you don't give them anything to go on. Because whether or not you've lived a spot-free life, they're going to say something about you no matter what. But if you live your life honorably before God, there will be a day when they are visited by God himself and they will see you for who you are because they see him for who he is and they will glorify God. So you see this, this might not sound like your favorite letter that you got from the Apostle Peter when he tells you, yeah, people are going to slander you, but here's what you do. Live a life of integrity. 
Live a life where even though they slander you, you're not giving them anything real to go on. He says, because when they see your good deeds as they observe them, maybe you had people that spoke about you behind your back and they they talked all sorts of stuff about you. Then they got to know you and they saw your life. And all of a sudden their opinion changed. Maybe you had people that had heard things about you or your family or your church and they they thought you were just a bunch of kooks and weirdos or or maybe they thought you were actually, you know, somehow malicious in heart or, or, you know, you were doing something that was wrong and then they began to get to know you and they saw your life and your life proved you weren't what they heard. Do you notice that Peter doesn't say, here's what happens when you slander. You need to mount on a, a defense. You need to get online on all the social media, and you need to start tearing their arguments apart. You notice he doesn't say that. He says, live your life. Keep your behavior full of the grace of God. Keep your behavior excellent. Excellent means having the same nature as God himself. Take after him. Then he says this in verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, but for the punishment of evildoers and praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you might silence the ignorance of foolish men. So if you're being slandered, keep doing right. I know that it's so much more fun to go to war. You know what I mean? I know it's so much more fun to, to launch a counterattack and talk bad about them or, or try to mount a vigorous defense of your actions. But I'm telling you, trust God to defend you. We don't serve a fairy tale God. We don't serve a God of our imagination. We serve a real and living God who's the judge of all creation. And you know he has the final say. The gavel is in his hand. When we try to fight our own battles, often we make it worse. But if we will give God room, what does the Bible say? Don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the judgment of God. What does that mean? It means if I try to take my own revenge, if I try to step into the situation, I step in the way of what God's doing. And I often make it much worse. He says, if it's such as the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Wouldn't it be nice if there were no more fools? Yeah? Leah says, yeah. Leah says, it would be great if there are no more fools in the world. <laughs> fool doesn't mean, in the Bible, fool doesn't mean somebody who's dumb. No. Fool means, fool can be a very smart person. But a fool is someone, watch, ignorant. They could have knowledge, but they refuse it. This is not somebody who just has a low IQ. This is somebody who may have a very high IQ, but is willingly ignorant. They're foolish. Their deeds prove it. And he says, here's how you silence them. Just do right. Keep walking. Keep doing what God called you to do. Keep trusting God. Keep praying, as Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Bless them. Love them. And let God handle it. Then he says in verse 16, act as free men. Don't use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. 
You see, he's talking to a group of people who are serving not because it was right, it was unjust. He was talking to a group of people who were treated wrong. He's talking to a group of people that are oppressed. And here's what he says. He says, this finds favor. Do you want to find favor with God? Do you want to find favor with God? Yes. Okay, good. If we want to find favor with God, look what he says. If for the sake of conscience towards God, what's conscience? Conscience is what you're aware of. Conscience is what you're thinking of. He says your conscience should be toward God. Here's who's who you're considering in the matter. Here's who you're thinking about. Here's where your mind is set on. I'm thinking about God. I'm not thinking about this person that hates me. I'm not thinking about this person that's gossiping about me. I'm not thinking about the people that are slandering me. I am considering. Considering God, he's where my hope is set on. And if I think about him, if I'm considering him, I will bear up under sorrows. I want you to think about the image of that. Think of, just think about the image that comes to your mind when you see somebody bear up under sorrows. Those sorrows, that unjust treatment is pressing them down, is crushing them. Imagine somebody who is being pressed down, being oppressed, being crushed, And they're slowly sinking to the ground. Now imagine them standing up. And though things are pressing down against them, imagine them bear up. Instead of screaming and saying, this isn't fair, they bear up and say, if God is for me, who can be against me? If the Lord fights for me, who do I fear? If I am right in his eyes, I don't care what I am in anyone else's eyes. They stand up and they say, you can't crush me. This is what Peter says to this group of people. He says, if you bear up when suffering unjustly, it finds favor with God. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you're the one that brought this on yourself, if people, if you're getting put in prison... Because you actually robbed a liquor store, don't say, oh God, you see how I'm suffering. You did it. Now, does God forsake you? No, he's still there for you. He'll redeem you. He will, he will, he will rescue you. He, I'm not saying he's busting you out of prison, but he will, <laughs> he will change your life. He still loves you. He still will, will uh, if you'll turn and repent towards him, his arms are always wide open. But he's saying, you, you can't have anything to brag about if you say, you know what? I've endured such hard treatment. I've endured such mistreatment at the hands of other people. And you go, well, why? Well, mostly because I steal from them regularly, (laughs) and they don't like it. Well, he says, what credit is there for that? You can't be proud about that. Some guy saying, it's a hard life, man. I had a hard life, you know. You know, the devil's, I hear people say this a lot. You know, the devil's been out to get me. I go, really? What, what, What did the devil do? Devil threw me in prison, man. I was like, oh, really? What happened? Well, I uh, stole a car. I got caught. I was like, oh, so the devil's working with the police now. Interesting. <laughs> that scoundrel. <laughs> There's no credit for that. You know, we got we to gotta take some responsibility and say, you know what? I did this. Thank God he, he forgives. Thank God his mercy is new every morning. Yeah. But I did this. And I'm pleading the mercy of God here, yes. not, not bragging by how much I've endured because they're really rough on me. Look what he says here, though. He says, but 
If when you do what's right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. I want you to think what favor with God looks like. What does favor with God look like? Favor with God. Favor with God is more than just he looks at you and smiles. Favor with God is more that he more than him just getting warm fuzzies inside when your name is said. Favor with God means that he moves on your behalf. Favor with God means that though there might be forces arrayed against you, there is a much stronger force on your side. He says, if you want to find favor with God, when people treat you badly, you don't take it into your own hands to make things right. You leave it to God and you patiently, you, you endure. He doesn't say you get crushed. He doesn't say you get destroyed. He says you endure. Do you know what it looks like when someone endures? No matter what's happening, God is upholding them. God is sustaining them. God is protecting them. God is keeping them so that they are not crushed in that time. He says this in verse 21. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So if we want to know what to do, we look at Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. It's ironic to some that Jesus, the one man in history who committed no sin, died the death of a vicious criminal. The one guy who did no wrong, not even a little one, not even a little white lie. He did nothing wrong ever in his life. And yet he was put up there with two criminals who were sentenced to death. What does it say in Isaiah? Isaiah 53 says, we looked at him and we thought he was smitten by God. We thought he brought this on himself. We thought he did something to deserve this. But he was bruised for our transgressions. He was punished for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we're healed. Do you see that? We're about to read that in a minute here too. Do you see how we are meant to follow in Jesus' footsteps? That even when he was lied about and slandered about, you know, I realize this might not be the sermon where people get up and run around the building hooting and hollering. But I want to prepare you so that you don't think God's forsaken you in these times. And you know that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. That you know there is a way to overcome. There's a way to conquer. There's a way to win. And it's not by the world's way of conquering. It's by his way. His way looks different than the world, doesn't it? It's the foolishness of the cross. How foolish does the cross look? Where Jesus conquered hell, death, and the grave once and for all by laying his life down. Not by raising up an army. Not by totally demolishing his enemies, but instead by laying himself down and bearing the sins of the world. This is what he did for you and for me. He showed us how to win. He showed us how to conquer. And it's not like the world thinks. He says, no deceit, no sin was found in him in verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Do you hear that? While being reviled, what does revile mean? means the people are talking really bad about you. He did not revile in return. What does the scripture say? It says, don't be, it says, don't, 
return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. How do you overcome evil with good? It says Jesus did not revile in return. And I'm telling you, this is the greatest preacher, the greatest speaker that the world has ever seen. If anybody could have knocked them flat on their rear ends with his rhetoric, it would have been Jesus. He could have made them look like a bunch of crying little schoolgirls. Sorry, schoolgirls, I didn't mean to offend you there. He could have made them look like a bunch of crying something. Uh, he didn't. Instead, he kept his mouth shut and he trusted God. It says he uttered no threats, but kept. Look at that. Because anytime you're going through this situation, it's not a one time. It's not a one moment. It's continually. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I need you to hear this tonight. This is for you. This is the key here, is that you would, in these situations, know that this is not about you just taking it lying down and being a doormat for the world. This is about you trusting a God who actually can do something about it. This is about you trusting a God who is the final judgment, who is the final say. And you say, you know, if they talk about me, if they treat me bad, if they accuse me, if they even put me in front of court, I'm going to trust myself to a God who judges righteously. It says that Jesus uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself. Kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed for you were constantly straying like sheep but now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls King David says this in the book of Psalms and we'll close with this thought Psalm chapter 7 he says and you know if anybody was mistreated it was David David <laughs> who made it his mission to help King Saul. When King Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit, King David, well, before he was King David, he was, a little, he was just a young guy. He'd come in and play his harp. And whenever David would play his harp, the evil spirits would leave Saul alone. David, who one day took up the king's challenge and defeated Goliath. David, who became the king's son-in-law and the king's son, his best friend. David was sitting at dinner one day with King Saul. And all of a sudden, King Saul looks across the table at him, picks up a spear, and chucks it at him for no reason. Maybe that sounds like Thanksgiving at your house. <laughs> but that doesn't sound good to me. Saul becomes convinced. You know why? Because he hears all these people talking about David. He becomes convinced that David's out to get his throne. So he makes it his mission to kill David. David, who's been nothing but good to this man. And maybe you felt betrayed like that before too. Then later on, David goes easy on one of his sons. And his other son is ticked off about it. His other son, Absalom, stands outside the gates and says, You know, if I were king, this is what I'd do different. Until there's enough people on Absalom's side for a rebellion, his own son. One of his best friends also turns and fights against him. If there's been a man besides Jesus who's been betrayed, it's this guy. Here's what he says in Psalm chapter 7. He says, O Lord my God, in you I've taken refuge. 
save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there's none to deliver. Oh, Lord, if I've done this, if there's any injustice in my hands, if I've rewarded evil to my friend, or if I've plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay me my glory in the dust. He's saying, if I did anything to deserve this, then don't help me. There are people that have turned against me and I can't figure out what I did to them. He says, Lord, if I did something, just tell me. But I'm, I'm positive I didn't do anything wrong. Have you ever felt like that? You ever prayed a prayer like this? He says in verse 6, He says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself from me. You've appointed judgment. Let the assemblies of the people encompass you and, and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. You see, he's saying, you're the judge. I'm not, they're not, you are. He says, the Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that's within me. You could tell he's ticked off. You could tell he's depressed. You could tell he's mad. But instead of going to those people and ranting, he goes to God. It's okay to be honest with God. It's okay to let it out in front of God. Just say, this is what I'm feeling right now. I mean, this, to me, when I read this, feels raw. It doesn't sound like somebody who sat down and wants to write a song for the church. This sounds like somebody who is bearing his heart before God. And I think many of you can, can identify with this right here. But he says, and ultimately this is the smartest thing he says, you're the judge. You vindicate me. Do you know God is your judge? Jesus trusted his soul to a God who judges righteously. Even when he was being reviled. He did not revile in return. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to a God who judges righteously. David goes on to say, Oh, let the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. You hear what he's saying? People aren't fair. Life's not fair. The world's not fair. But God is fair. God is just. God is righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God. I want you to hear that. You say those words to yourself when you feel attacked, when you feel slandered. You say, my shield is with God. He's my shield. And people are firing arrows at you. People are firing darts at you. My shield is with God. He says, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow. He's made it ready. He's also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails. He fights with wickedness. And he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. This is talking about the person who's opposed to God. It says he has dug a pit. Look. So he's not, you notice in your Bibles, it went from a capital H to a small H, right? This isn't God that travails with wickedness. This is not a God who conceives mischief. He's talking about these people that are against him. He says, the wicked man uses mischief. The wicked man uses wickedness. And he brings forth falsehood. He says, he dug a pit and he hollowed it out. 
but then he fell into the hole which he made. (laughs) And guys, I'm going to tell you, this is the end of the story for most. Those that dig a pit to trap good people will eventually fall into their own pit. It's not up to you to put them there. They'll fall there themselves. They'll find themselves in their own pits. It's not up to you to make sure they land where they deserve. It's not up to you to say, well, vengeance is the Lord, and today I'm the Lord's vengeance. No. Let God handle it, and you keep your integrity. It says in verse 16, His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give, or pate, or whatever you say. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And that's the end of the story. You might say, well, how does that connect to Paul? Well, Paul, in all of these things, was accused of a lot of things. He was accused of being a bad Jew. He was accused of being a bad Christian. He was accused of being a Uh, a a rebel who rebelled against the Jews and a rebel who rebelled against the Romans. He was accused of being a leader of terrorist assassins. I mean, come on, it's pretty out there. And yet he trusted his soul to God. He went to Jerusalem knowing he was going to be mistreated, but knowing that I can trust God. God is my judge. God is my vindicator. He's my vindication. He's the one that will defend me. Just a basic truth. I don't know if anybody told you this, but life is not fair. And people aren't always going to be fair. But God will always be righteous. God will always be just. And God is on your side. And I want you to know that today, if you have felt betrayed or attacked, leave it in the hands of God. Believe the best about people. Because if you're slandered, don't you think other people are too? And if you've heard things about people that you don't know, you know what? I just do what 1 Corinthians 13 says. I believe the best. I hope all, you got to hope all things. You got to believe all things. If you don't have proof to to the contrary, I don't care what people say. Just believe the best about people. But when it comes to you and you feel betrayed and you feel attacked, God is more than able to vindicate you. He's more than able to defend you. He is your shield. He is your bulwark. He is your fortress. He is the God in which you trust. So if you feel attacked, don't worry. The wicked will fall into their own pit that they dug for you. Their evil will fall into their own own self again. Don't worry about them. In fact, Jesus says not only don't worry about them, but it says love them, pray for them, and bless them. Let God handle it. Amen? Now, I don't know what, I, I, I'm going to tell you this honestly. Today, tonight, as I'm preaching this, I don't know of any situations outstanding that this applies to, okay? So if you think, you heard somehow, I didn't. I don't know of any outstanding situations that you're going through that this applies to, but I do know at some point it will apply. Because Jesus said, if they persecuted me, he'll persecute you. What made you think they're going to play fair? What made you think that the devil, the father of lies, is going to just be a nice gentleman about it? You know, if Jesus died the death of a criminal when he was without sin, now they didn't take his life, he laid it down, didn't he? 
He chose to go to that cross for you and for me. But you know if they treated Jesus that way, they might do the same to you. But you do what he did. You keep entrusting your soul to a God who judges righteously. The judge has the final say. God has the final say, not people. And I want you to know if no one else believes in you, I do. And the Lord does. And we know that uh, he will defend his people. He will fight for them. He will vindicate them. And in the end, you will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Amen? Amen. Stand with me tonight.